Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. You know, if I was to take all the podcasts I've done and really all my learning in the last seven years and squish it together, compress it together, and say, what would I do differently? You know, so now that I'm taking this knowledge that I've learned on this path, three quarters of a decade, seven, eight years, that I would focus almost exclusively on protein. Hmm. You know, when I came into this, this is a couple of years before there were any conferences. So keto really wasn't out there as a word. I remember some people I knew that were selling on Amazon. I said, I think this is going to be the next big thing in keto. And they go, what? What's keto? And so um, that's how unknown the word was. And of course, it's now well known. Shows how things can happen so simply. But you know, it wouldn't be about being on the ketogenic diet. It wouldn't be about high fat. Primarily, it would be about 95% of understanding protein and understanding how much protein you need to have and how it really changes your life. And here's where I'm coming from. So now having worked with people, various programs, I, I enjoy all that and I enjoy all the labs that I, and the different panels that we do. So we do a one long metabolic panel. We do a hormone panel. We do intracellular nutritional, looking for nutritional deficiencies, and we do genomic analysis of the major uh, genome problems. And so from that, it just gives me a different context. You know, it's not just doing the same old, same old. When people ask questions, you know, they're on, whether they send it to me because they've heard me on the podcast or now on the YouTube or from the Facebook group or Facebook groups that we are in or run, that the concept, the first concept that I would encourage you to dispel yourself of is that we all do the same thing. We're all going to get the same results. That has never, 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 never been true. So when people ask for, you know, I've done keto, I've done this, and I'm wondering about how to do the protein sparing modified fast. Well, for one, when you join our group for 50 bucks for a whole month of coaching, collective coaching, and learn a lot about it. But the assumption is, if I get the instructions, generic instructions down, right? So the generic instructions, let's say for a protein sparing modified fast would be, have protein and strip it of the fat. Done. 
That's as far as anybody's ever gone. And that's the instructions. It's not the instructions for our group, by the way. And why I say that is that some people will get it, they'll do it, and they'll get results. Some people will get it and do it and not get results and have a number of problems on the way. In part, it's because people are different. In part, it's because of how they've lived their lives up till this moment. You know, where where is their metabolism? It just doesn't change because you want it to change because you heard this new diet gizmo thingy is going to do this for you. No, you have to kind of go back and pull the roots out of whatever the problem is you have metabolically and address those. And that's pretty much which has always been the case. Certainly in medicine, when I sit across the table from people, that's what you look at. You look at the bigger picture. The problem with medicine and seeing people come in and having your appointment is you can't change their lives. You can only tweak them, right? A little bit. You go, well, in these labs, this is it. You have X amount of time. And I'm not talking 15 minutes. I would spend an hour and first appointment's an hour and a half. So you get a lot. And we get to some special labs on certain occasions and so on. But still, what has always really been missing is the bigger picture. And uh, we would have lecture series at our office, you know, in the evening and people would come to, and that was the attempt to present the bigger picture. There's a big PowerPoint we'll go through and we even made dinner for everybody. People had to pay a nominal fee, $5 for the night. What a way to entertain yourself, right? Looking back, it was both nice thing to do and it was uh, a little naive. People don't change their way of living, don't change their lifestyle merely on a whim or that they're interested. They usually have to have some serious issues going on to make them reconsider what they've been doing that and say, you know, maybe it's not the best thing and or to consider other options. And so it's that deeper thinking is the thing, is the catalyst that makes the change. All the suggestions that are out there. And so people go, well, what do I do? As if there's this set of building blocks, you put the right four together and we all can have the same right four blocks together and follow that sequence. It will all work out. It won't. It won't. And so I hate to present that disclaimer so upfront, but however, if we're talking about universal truths, clearly we have to start with, you got to drop the carbs. However you get there, you got to drop the carbs. That's universal. Some people can and can't do it. And there's a lot of reasons why some people can't do it. And it's not because they're babies or they're fussy. It's because they are them and you got to find those other reasons to make it so they can move forward on a low carb. Okay. So to protein, see, the problem is when we started keto is you don't hear much about protein. You know, that we talked about the classic ketogenic diet. I went back to the history of and the evolution of both fasting and the ketogenic diet more than a couple of times. And one of the things that they were worried about, because a ketogenic diet started about treating pediatric epilepsy in the 1920s. And you can argue whether it was 1921 or 1924, the concept was 21. And Dr. Peterman came out with the results of what they were doing by 1925, pretty much. And so the question that they were most concerned about, and this is back in the day in which a place like the Mayo Clinic, which is... Uh, Russell Wilder was the one who supposedly is credited with coming up the with the idea of it. If you looked at pictures of the Mayo Clinic at that time, you'd see that it was like mostly a big kitchen, you know, and there's our eating facility. It was huge. And the hospital was actually very small. It, it's amazing. You look at it you're like, well, what are you guys doing? And this is before the food industry, by the way. This was getting a handle on if we teach people to eat, if we give them the right diet, it's going to change their life. 
what a great truism, but they've obviously tossed that one out the window in terms of medicine in the United States today. But anyway, you'll see this big kitchen and it's a big deal of all the levels of kitchen work and the diets for the different patients and so on. It's amazing. Absolutely stunning. So it was in that environment they're looking at, they're thinking just on a macro level. They were worried that they were not going to give the children, pediatric epilepsy, children, epilepsy, we're not going to give them enough protein. And so that was the thing that was holding up the shebang, holding up the, the rollout of the classic ketogenic diet is because they didn't know exactly where to go. So they decided at 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's basically how they did it. Funny, they're even metricized back then. Probably had a lot to do that Dr. Russell and his colleagues actually, it was pretty, I don't know, fashionable, but it was pretty much required as part of their medical education to go study at another a European hospital and university. And so he and some of his colleagues and his mentors studied in Vienna. I don't know if that meant they also had to speak German and everything, but I'm thinking they didn't make it easy on these guys. So there's a lot required. You had to go away, live there, study there. Then this was post-medical school. This is advanced medical training. That's where you went. That was the advanced medical training was in Europe. Anyway, the protein was the thing they couldn't, weren't quite sure of what level they should do because if they gave a growing child too little protein to stop his epilepsy, would that be a problem? And would they stunt his growth and so on and so forth? So that was the issue there, was about the amount of protein. Okay, so they went forward with that and the diet took off and then it got unpopular when all the medications came out, but the medications were not doing well and the surgery was not doing well. So due to Charlie Abrams, actually his father, Jim Abrams, the whole Charlie Foundation came out in the late 90s. A brilliant story. We've talked about that as well. But the heart of it, the most important thing there, now speaking of non-epilepsy issues, fat is very important in epilepsy. And they still don't know, is it the dropping of the carbs? Is it the increasing of the fat? So it's a pretty fatty meal. So it is a high-fat, low-carb ketogenic diet. And they would simply say moderate protein. Okay, now let me jump to 2021. And as we look on the aged population, a member of which I am, in a month I'll be 65. And so I've chosen to really hunker down and follow the protein sparing modified fast for the month and adjust amount of protein. So all the frills of life and so on and so forth it will be not experimented with in this particular month. But I want to tell you why I'm doing this. Because what, about three years ago when we started yet protein sparing modified fast to fat course, is that we thought, you know, just trim the fat off your protein, see what happens, and people had their benefits. Oh, well, it's great. But the story is a lot bigger than that. It really has a lot to do with diabetes. It really has a lot to do with an enfeebled older population of the United States. Can't speak to other countries. And so why I say that is because one of the assumptions has been is that, well, as adults get older, their muscle atrophies. They have less and less muscle mass. And you know, why is that? Well, it's because their hormones have decreased. Well, it, well, it could be all those reasons. And those are all rather esoteric reasons to, to claim that to give a rather 
educated opinion, but I think it's far simpler than that. And nothing is one thing, by the way. I'm not oversimplifying. But what has been forgotten is the protein component. So when we talk about sarcopenia, which is age, it's generally considered age-related muscle mass loss. And you could have sarcopenia at 15, but generally it's referred to as age-related. So people over 50, they don't have enough muscle mass. They go, well, gee, I guess it was in your genes. Yeah, well, well, two things really are about proteins. And there's a whole course. I mean, so we've, by doing our course two years ago, it has gone through a number of revisions because my interest and my research and going to conferences and watching various YouTube presentations really brought me to a higher level of understanding how important protein really is. And so it really comes down to you can calculate on your body weight, your ideal body weight, which is not a scientific number. You can go onto Google right now and say, punch in your gender, punch in your height, and forget about the rest. And you can even put in your age, but the age actually does not make that much of a difference. I'll get to that in a second. Then you get, all right, Uh, And they're all within a couple pounds. And that is fine. This is not rocket science. So, but use it to your ideal body weight as opposed to what your actual body weight is. So if you are 300 pounds overweight, I don't want you calculating how much protein you should be eating 300 plus whatever you're supposed to be weighing. Okay. That's the point I use ideal body weight. Okay. So we got that out of the way. But so part of the age-related sarcopenia, muscle mass loss is because Adults do not eat very much protein. It's become less it's become less and less and less part of our daily diet. And so what would be the expected results? The expected results would be you have a population of adults that have much lower muscle mass than they should have than they did have 100 years ago or 200 years ago. That's pretty straightforward. And the other, of course, is physical activity. But you know, when people go physical activity, oh, I mean, I got to be going to the gym. I'm never, I was never an adult. They went to the gym. I was a swimmer or a runner or whatever the thing was that you were doing. There is virtue in weight resistance training. However, you can knock that off in 15 minutes twice a week if you're really reluctant to go to the gym or get these things for your home. But it has to be, and so that's where high intensity training comes in because you have. One is you you simply are pushing against something and and that resistance beyond your ability, right, to the point your muscles get tired, will be a stimulation to muscle growth. But let me go back just on the quantity of protein, just on the quantity of protein. So in fact, let me pretend and say you are in a hospital bed and you've been told you really can't do anything more than walk around the hall once a day for the next month or two or three, and you're one who is used to being pretty active, oh my gosh, what do you think is going to happen? Your muscles are going to atrophy. You bet they are. But in that particular situation, you actually could have a protein powder that was a little bit whey-based, but higher in leucine. And that, and this is the point I'm trying to get to, is the protein that you're eating. And in that situation, you're having a protein powder with leucine is the key is going to stimulate muscle growth by a little. It's a freebie. It's not like, oh, wow, you're going to wake up and be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not at all. But it's keeping you from losing weight. So just the fact that you are eating protein, and now we're in that particular situation, we just said whey plus leucine, you do really well. You'll definitely not be wasting away. 
So just protein. So now in the real world where you're at home and you're fairly active, whatever that may mean to you, having whole food sources of protein. So it's the meat, it's the chicken, it's the pork, it's the game, it's the lamb, it's the whatever you want to make it. That would be the way to go, whole food sources. And you'll find by having your appropriate amount of protein and how I calculated it, and I feel so apologetic kind of to my mother, who was a dietitian in the 40s and 50s, if you can remember. Um, it goes along with a child not respecting your parents that much, I guess. But when I would ask, how much protein do we need to eat? She goes, oh, it's one gram of protein per pound body weight. Well, because she mixed the units, I thought she doesn't know what she's talking about. So now we are 70 years later, 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, and we find out that actually what that means, if you convert the units, one gram of protein per pound of body weight, ideal body weight, equals 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So there you go. It's like, and so science has now quite verified that it's not even the upper limit, by the way. You can even go higher than that. But the problem is nobody eats anywhere near that. So to argue about what's the highest and too much, and no, it's not going to burn out your kidneys, and no, it's not going to give you cancer. Maybe that's a podcast in itself, but none of that's going to happen. And that's that's just the same old BS that shows up and somebody tries to be an expert with a stupid comment that keeps people from doing the right thing. So you can eat all the way up into the low threes. And there is a thing about if you actually are eating three grams of protein plus per kilogram of body weight, that's fairly high. I think I've probably had that in a few days. It's not going to kill you. But there's a point that if you, if I were to do that day after day after day, my kidneys might get tired of might be hitting their capacity. So it's it's kind of an unknown. They have to conjecture what is the upper limit of your kidney's ability to pull off the nitrogen and put it off into the urine. That's what it does. That's proteins that have nitrogen, right? So they're that's what amino acids are. Are carbon formulas with nitrogen in them. Okay. So but so the problem is. The big problem has been under-eating protein for a lifetime, for the most part. And they weren't under-eating protein 150 years ago, I'm assuming. I mean, there's obviously poor people, but people who ate meat, they ate a lot of meat. And so that was the thing of their meal, was meat. And it was meat throughout the day. It wasn't veggies, for the most part. That was a minor, minor, minor addition. It wasn't let the meat cake, you know, the bread. That was merely a caloric filler. So to this adult population, over 50, but you could say over 20 is like, take Junior who's sitting on the couch, you know, being a gamer now. Well, they don't want to lose their muscle mass. So maybe they should eat that amount of protein per their height, an ideal body weight, on a daily basis. More than likely, they are not doing that. They're doing probably less than half of that. Uh, They're probably you know, when you look at the RDAs, the RDA is 0.8 by comparison, 2.2. So their muscles, they are going to be looking thin. They might even be a tophi, a thin on the outside and fat on the inside. So it's not always by what you're going to see. And so that's real important. So anyways, if you built a diet around just the amount of protein you're supposed to have, period one, you'd stop atrophy of all the adults going forward, right? So if you mark that imaginary point in their life and say we're changing the amount of protein from that point forward, you would change their 
future forever and keep them on track. The other good thing about protein is it's very satisfying. I mean, it's very satiating. You feel full. And that's the other reason why you can pretty much say there is no upper limit on eating protein because nobody's reached it because everybody feels full. They feel full around 2.2 grams per, or even less. But back to adults. Adults tend to be satiated sooner than younger people. And you can say it's hormones or whatever. Back to that. But the problem is they need it more. So they need the appropriate, the right amount of protein. They need to have it every day. And if they want to go one step further, if they took whatever that amount was for them and broke it up into four eating events, if you will, a small breakfast with protein, a late breakfast or early lunch with protein, an afternoon snack with protein, and a dinner four times a day, that frequency, I didn't increase, I didn't say increase your protein, but you already calculated that, spread it out over at least four eating events, they call them, that you also will be increasing your protein, your, I should say, your muscle protein stimulation. Isn't that amazing? So these are freebies. One was eat enough that you're supposed to be eating. You're going to start stimulating more muscle mass than you would have had you not. And not eating enough is really what the population is all about. The second is spread it out. You get even a slightly more stimulus. In other words, four stimuli in the course of the day of protein muscle stimulation. And perhaps even the bigger point when we talk about, oh my gosh, you know, um, 90% of the population in the United States is really undiagnosed pre-diabetic or diabetic. That's old news since Dr. Kraft's work over the 1990s. But muscle mass, having the muscle on your arms, on your legs, your back, your abdomen, and so on, having the muscle there, that is the biggest consumer, the biggest glucose dump of your whole, of any of any organ, not your brain, not your liver, not your lungs, none of that. It's your muscles. They suck it up. And they, by sucking it up, by having these sponges, if you will, if you can imagine that, you have sugar sponges all over your body, healthy sugar sponges, which are muscles. They're sucking in the glucose. And consequently, they're keeping your bloodstream level glucose, your glucose levels throughout your whole bloodstream at a healthy level, simply by having these big sponges, not even big, adequate sponges. And you can make them bigger sponges and we haven't gotten to that part yet. So that's why it's important. So if you took this diabetic and obesity epidemic, they say that we have all around, which I don't doubt, and you said, you know, we're going to go a different route we're just going to focus on protein and have you take a walk every day as a minimal kind of exercise. That would be a significant difference. If to that, you also drop their carbohydrates, that would be far improve it. So both are really important truths. I'm just trying to get across that the truth of protein as the core of who we are and what we need in our diet daily has been so far underrepresented and it really needs to be addressed. So I'm not trying to blame the Diabetic Institute Association and so on. It's just that they don't get out what I think is often appropriate information. I've often thought that way back from practicing as well. They're trying to oversimplify it to have the most number of people do something positive in their life. I guess that would be my defense of their under informing their public. but getting your protein right and having it daily in the very least, then having it in four servings would be a bump up 
Okay, so now the other thing that will help with muscle protein stimulus, synthesis, actually. Same, same. Okay, so what about exercise? Is walking around the block really going to do it? You know, I said resistance training. Well, if you can do some resistance training, which means lifting weights, that would be a difference. So they have machines for that, they have free weights for that, and so on. But the reference of high-intensity training, and I hope you go back and listen to the interview interviews I did with Dr. Vincent Benkikio. They're such a great name, first name and last name. Also can be called Dr. Ben. That we covered a lot of that. It is not its intensity. It's a short period of pushing yourself to muscle fatigue. And that's 15 minutes twice a week. Amazing. 15 minutes twice a week. So everybody has that. The question is, do you have the will to do something? And there's a lot of changes that will subsequently come into your life because of that. You address the protein, you get to some resistance training. Doesn't have to be that confusing. Can be just four or five basic exercises. And after that, you can do what you will. Go walk around the block, go play tennis, go what do what the thing is that you usually do or do not do. But at least you now have incredible things you've done for yourself apart from medication, right? It has nothing to do with medication, apart from supplementation, nothing to do with supplementation. And that's why I tell people to have whole food sources of protein, except for that situation in the hospital when somebody's convalescing. Well, it would be much more expedient in those situations to have the whey with leucine, an additional leucine, not just in what's in the whey, be very helpful. And so the question then comes up, all right, somebody's doing these other things you just told us. They're, they're having their whole food sources of protein and they're doing the HIT at least twice a week or they're doing resistance training. Would it help them any more if they had a protein powder, the whey and the leucine? No, it wouldn't, actually. That has been tested. No, it wouldn't. If you're not eating protein and you're working out, eating protein will make a big difference. If you're not going to have whole food sources of protein, then you have the other kind of protein. Why I don't like that is because when you have a protein powder, you don't get the fats that are in there. And so one of the things about fats, especially omega fats, which you do get through all your proteins, you obviously get it much more in fish. You get it much more in what they call fatty fish, the salmon and the uh, northern chard and things like that. It sensitizes your muscles to regulating glucose. So it's an extra level. And you get that only through whole food sources of protein. So if you're just having protein powder and didn't have the fats in there and think you're going to go, well, I'll add the fats in later, that's a waste. You've sort of shot yourself in the foot. It's really not a thing to do. So I wanted to make sure that you really knew, and I totally believe, so back to the protein-sparing modified fats, are people going to stay on it forever? As we talk about in the group, is that no, if you're just eating muscle meat, which is in essence what you're doing, except for the fish, the fish has really good omega-3s, and omega-3s are on other sources as well, as I've mentioned, is that you're going to have to have some organ meats. I mean, if you look at what are the, the, what's the minimal list? The minimal list is liver and egg yolks. You're going to get your vitamin A's, which you're not going to get. You're going to get your fat-soluble vitamins across. So how we do it is we make protein bread as a treat, and then on the weekends we scarf the egg yolks. And then the liver, I like liver, I like liver worse. There's a lot you can do with liver, but some people go, oh, I can't have it. Well, at some point, you're going to have to make some changes if you want to keep yourself healthy. You can go buy various supplements if that's what you want to do. But these are the bricks and mortars, literally the bricks and mortars of what it takes to be healthy well past 90 into 100 years. 
But if you don't do that, you will be another statistic in the sense of another frail American who, whether you're wealthy or not, if you don't take care of this part of who you are, you're going to be a frail person and then you'll be under-muscled, bone problems, autoimmune problems. We haven't even gone to that. When you have your muscle mass is also the anchor of your immune system. Great story to talk about another time. Okay. I hope that helped. I hope you got some marching orders from me and you get a clear idea of what to do. No, you don't have to come into our program, but you know how important protein is. It's protein first. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.